Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, August 10th, we are studying Judges chapter 18, verses 1 through 31. Micah has his own personal Levite. He thinks that that sort of outward piety is going to be pleasing before the Lord, and it turns out that it's not only individuals who fooled themselves in that way— There were also entire tribes that deceived themselves with that sort of outward piety. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Matt Ulmer. Pastor Ulmer serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning. So, Pastor Ulmer, we're picking up here in Judges 18, where chapter 17 left off. These last several chapters of the book of Judges are different from the rest of the book, as you and I were were discussing before the show. They're not stories that we usually tell in Sunday school, and, and maybe we don't even talk about them in seminary when we're training to be pastors. This is one of those parts of the Bible that is sometimes, well, I shouldn't say sometimes, it's very often neglected, and maybe it only gets read on those times when we're attempting to read through the entire Bible, maybe in a year or two years. We, we do come across these chapters, and we often are left scratching our heads. So help us introduce this chapter this morning. Give us some context from 17. What do we need to know going into these rather strange verses that we're going to encounter today? Yeah, so I think that the first thing to to recognize about Judges 18 is that, as you said, the story starts in chapter 17, and chapter 17 is the first chapter in the book of Judges, kind of after the narrative of the Judges. The Samson and Delilah story ends in Judges 16. And right after the, the Samson narrative the author of the book of Judges tells a story about uh, a man in the hill country of Ephraim, and uh, his name is Micah. And Micah's an interesting character because he steals a whole bunch of silver from his mom. He confesses that he stole the silver. She sort of forgives him and takes some of that silver and makes a household idol. Uh, after they make the idol, a, a wandering Levite comes to their home. Micah invites the, the wandering Levite to become his own personal priest, and the Levite apparently thinks that's a good idea and uh, consents to be the priest for the house of Micah. Um, and then we get into to verse 18 where uh, you have this situation where you have these people living in the land where there is idolatry, where there is a priest who kind of has, for some reason, left his job and has joined the household of, of Micah. And this is a, a case study about what it means for Israel when they don't have a leader, a mm-hmm. strong leader. And, and that's that refrain is going to come up yet again in Judges chapter 18. So let's start to read and continue this conversation. Judges 18, beginning at verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel. 
And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the people of Dan sent five able men from the whole number of their tribe, from Zorah and from Eshtol, to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, Go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, Who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What is your business here? And he said to them, This is how Micah dealt with me. He has hired me, and I have become his priest. And they said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, Go in peace. The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. All right, we'll pause there, Pastor Ulmer. So before we get into the specifics of this account, take us further into that opening phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. We've heard this already in the book of Judges. Why is this such a a big deal? Yeah, you you have this refrain, in those days Israel had no king. And, And this points to a time when when there seemed to be a lot of both moral and spiritual lawlessness in the land. You have the people Israel who were redeemed by God's outstretched arm from Egypt, and they, they were given a strong leader in Moses. And then Moses passed the torch to Joshua, and then at the beginning of Judges, you, you see when Joshua dies that the, the people Israel kind of go into a little bit of chaos because there's no clear successor. But when the people fall away and they cry out to God for help, God does send them strong leaders in the Judges to kind of restore the people. But now we're in the part of the story of Judges where the there are no more judges because the Samson narrative is over and the institution of the king in Israel doesn't happen until after first Samuel eight, when the people are asking God, they're bugging Samuel and God for a king. So they're in this time uh, where they don't have a strong leader and people, this is causing people to fall away to do wicked things, and the rule of the land is whoever kind of has the most power uh, can enact their will. Might makes right. Yeah, the the might makes right, I think, is going to be a, a helpful phrase for us to come back to on multiple occasions as we see what happens in this text. So there's no king in Israel. And I, I, think, I think, too, the fact that there is no king in Israel in the sense that there is no earthly leader like you had a a Moses or a Joshua previously, as you said, it it not only invites us to consider the the moral decay and the lawlessness that exists just in the land, but the spiritual lawlessness as well, that when there was no king in Israel, it seems that the people had a really hard time recognizing that the Lord was their king. And not only are they not following any particular earthly leader like a Moses or a Joshua, but they're really struggling— to follow the Lord himself as their king, because the Lord always was their true king. And so even even at this point, I I think both of those things are are in play when we hear this phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel. It's inviting us also to consider how they've forsaken the Lord and his kingdom ultimately in these days of 
of lawlessness. Yeah, and when it gets further into the history, into First Samuel, um, God makes that pretty clear when the people ask Samuel to ask God for a king, because God says, um, they have rejected me as king, in, in verse 7 of First Samuel 8. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. That was kind of the understanding of the of the people, God had chosen them to be his people, and they were supposed to to follow him and, and trust him uh, and to show the world him through them. And that's kind of all failing right now. Right, yeah, and, it, and it's failed, you know, during that narrative of the judges that we saw, which is the bulk of the book, chapters 3 through 16, we saw how that moral decay in Israel affected even the leaders that God did send. And I think these last chapters of the book of Judges, 17 through 21, really help us to see the nation and the tribes on a larger scale. We see that decay happening, not just in the individual leaders, but but to the people as a whole. And so in the narrative that we've got here in 17 and 18, we've got Micah and his his own Levite, which is just, it's kind of weird to even talk about it like that, but that's the situation. And and now we're going to widen the scope a little bit to see how that is going to interplay with particularly the tribe of Dan. And the language that we get here at the open open opening part of Judges chapter 18 takes us almost back to the book of Joshua, the beginning of Judges, in this matter of finding the inheritance and where the tribe is going to dwell. What's going on here with the tribe of Dan finding its inheritance? Yeah, this is kind of a—I'll be honest with you, this is just kind of a really, really strange narrative, because in Joshua 19, the tribe of Dan— did did receive an allotment. It is recorded in Joshua 19, verses 40 through 48. And while the rest of the tribes were, were, were given their allotment, were conquering the land, apparently something happened to the tribe of Dan. And I, I don't think there's anything that specifically says what happened to them, but they, they weren't able to to take the land that was allotted to them, whether... It was because God had pulled his favor because of their persistent faithlessness, or they didn't want to go into that land, or or, or whatever reason it was. You, you have a tribe here who had, who had been allotted an inheritance, failed to uh, obtain that inheritance, and now they are kind of like a roving clan looking for a, a place to call their own home. The problem is, is that the place they end up finding is not the the piece of land, that's not the portion that they were assigned. So keep taking us then into this account. The people of Dan is a, a roving clan of sorts, not sure where to go, what to do. Uh, what's their plan? What do, what do they, I mean, take us into this text, into what just happens. Yeah, so uh, apparently they're, they're looking around for a, a good place to to settle, and they they happened to find this place called Laish, and while they were kind of making their way there to, to set up a, a camp in order to go and destroy it, they, they run across this character that we met in Judges 17. They run across uh, Micah and his household, 
And when they when they when they run across Micah in his household, they they kind of take a break. And uh, this is where they they run into Micah's Levite and have an exchange with him, hmm. um, which. I, from everything that I've read, they're kind of going from the land of Ephraim, and they're they're headed north because Laish is in the north, um, and and that's where they run into to Micah's Levite. Right. So they're they're on there, and and I I got a little bit ahead of myself there. We haven't actually read to how they're going to to get to Laish and what they're going to do there. We're we're they're on the way. They've got these spies yep. that they send out, which is reminiscent of the book of Numbers, where Joshua sends out spies. So, and, and maybe we can, we can talk about that a little later, where, where the, the yeah. similarities and differences between those two accounts and, and what we should make of Dan. Are they being faithful in this or not? I think, I think we've both kind of tipped our hand where we're, where we're leaning, probably not being faithful. Yeah, absolutely. So, but on the way, and this is where the connection is going to be made, on the way they, they come to the house of Micah, they recognize this Levite's voice, apparently. Maybe he had a, an accent. Maybe they just knew him from somewhere else. But they recognize him, and they're like, well, hey, what's, what's going on here? And he explains the situation. And and then they ask him, well, please, please ask God, inquire of God, and let us know if we're going to succeed or not. And he says, yeah, you're 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 good to go. the The journey on which you go is under the eye of the Lord. Take us into this. This is where the the two accounts are going to connect: is the tribe of Dan and Micah and the Levite. How? What are they asking him here? What are we to make of his answer? Yeah, th- this is one of those situations where. I, th- I think you have a couple things at play. The, the first is that being a Levite, uh, this this priest would have been understood by all of the people of Israel to be somebody who was appointed to intercede to Yahweh on their behalf. That was his job as a Levite, and I think that was kind of understood by Micah and then the Danites here when they see him they they thought that they could use him to be an intercessor between them and God because they had a plan for what they were going to do. Connected with that was the understanding that when when the people of Israel were to do anything, especially in the conquest, their success depended on whether or not God was with them. They had a plan. They were headed to Laish. They were planning on sending out spies. They were planning on attacking and overthrowing the city to make their land theirs. And this was a, a convenient opportunity to at least pay lip service mm-hmm. to uh, what the people of Israel were supposed to do, uh, namely to get God's blessing, to see if this is what God wanted for them, so that they would have him fighting on their side so that they might succeed. Hmm. So I, I think you've probably already answered this pretty well, Pastor Ulmer, in the way that you've phrased it. But is this a legitimate thing that's going on here? I mean, they come, they ask this Levite, is it legitimate for them to ask this Levite? Is the answer that he gives legitimate? Yeah, and I, and I think the answer to all of those questions that you can that you have asked is to, to frankly come out and say, no, I think absolutely everything here is, is completely illegitimate. Number one, you have a Levite who is not in his kind of designated office in his place, which would have been in Jerusalem in, in the temple cult. 
Number two, you have a, a Levite who is uh, performing his duties in the vicinity of and being approving of idols, which mm. which is a gigantic problem for the for the people of God uh, and a clear violation of the first commandment. And then number three here. It, it doesn't even seem that the priest does any inquiring of the Lord here. It, it doesn't seem that he prays. It doesn't seem that he is using any of the of the same kind of relics that they would use in the temple to acquire the Lord. He just kind of gives the, the tribe of Dan the message that they want to hear. Mm-hmm. And uh, they seem to be pretty happy to hear it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Right. I think the, the way you phrased it earlier was they're, they're all— paying lip service to the Lord and his word, but there's no real devotion, no real faith in his word. The The last chapter, chapter 17, ended with verse 13, where Micah is comforting himself, saying, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as priest, as if to think, oh, I've gone through the motions, I've, I've checked the boxes, and now the Lord is going to do good to me. And it seems that that yeah. same way of thinking is not only present in Micah, it's present in this Levite, and it's also present throughout the whole tribe of Dan, or at least these warriors who have, have gone to to spy out, that as long as we check the right boxes, it doesn't really matter if we've got an idol set up over here, for example, or if we're, we're worshiping at the tabernacle that the Lord has given us. Those things don't really matter. We've, we've checked our boxes, and so we're good. This outward piety that covers an, an inward decay and faithfulness seems to be what's going on here in this text. I, I I completely agree with you. I think that's exactly what's going on. Mm. So let's let's keep going here on this side of the break because we've got a good chunk of text. That's the situation. That's where those two stories are going to intersect. And we're going to come back to this. But but first we're going to deal more with the matter of Dan seeking out a place for its inheritance. So Judges 18, we're now in verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there, how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that is in the earth and possessing wealth, and how they were far from the Sidonians who had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Eshtaol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? They said, Arise, and let us go up against them, for we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go to enter in and possess the land. As soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands, a place where there is no lack of anything that is in the earth. All right, we'll pause there. So these spies get to where they're going, to this town called Laish, and then they're going to look at it and they're going to go back and report what is it that they see there in Laish that's so enticing to them, Pastor Elmer? Yeah, this is this is so good, isn't it, uh, brother? Because when when they go and see Laish, they see a couple things that really kind of pique their interest. Number one, they they see a land that is good, and in verse nine, it's very interesting that. The report from the spy says that the land is very good. It lacks nothing. This kind of 
points us back to the, the same phraseology that God used in Genesis 1 when he looked upon his creation and said that it was very good. They, 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 say, they say the same thing here. Also, um, it kind of reminisces back in, in Deuteronomy when the, the people are told that they are going to enter into a land that is good. It has the resources that they need. When they look on Laish, this is the kind of land that they see. And because it has everything that they think that they need, it, it ends up being a, a place that is desirable for them. The other reason why it's particularly desirable is because of the political situation that the people who lived in Laish uh, had found themselves in. Uh, they were at peace. They were secure. They were apparently living under the, the freedom and the security of the Sidonians. Uh, so they were living like the Sidonians did. The problem was that they were far enough away from Sidon that uh, even if they had allied themselves with the Sidonians, they probably wouldn't have been able to reach them in time to, to affect the course of battle. So the Danites found a, a settlement in Laish that both was good land in their eyes, but also uh, militarily ripe for destruction. They They were able to overthrow it on, under their own power because the, the people were comfortable, they had no reason to fight, and any allies that they might have had were too far away to, to affect the battle. Mm. So from a human perspective then, Laish seems like a town that is ripe for the picking. And if all we have is verses 7 through 10, which we just read, and we're not in the context of Holy Scripture— what the spies go and see and what they come back and report makes perfect sense from a human wisdom perspective. This looks like a great place to settle. It's going to be very easy to defeat. All of this makes perfect sense if you're looking at it from a Agreed. purely human perspective. But when we take these verses and put them in the context of all of Holy Scripture— that's where we start to see all of the conflict come in. And really, I think, great irony, those those parallels that you were pointing out uh, from the book of Genesis and Deuteronomy, both that we see in the language that the Danites use. You know, this is very good, just like God saw in Genesis chapter 1. It's very good, right? Of course, he would want us to have this. Well, would he? <laughs> and, and I think well, that— and I, Go I ahead. I think we can answer that question because—I think we can answer that question because— this is not the land that was appointed to the Danites. So does God want them to have it? No, he doesn't. No, exactly. And I, I think you're, and that's, that's the point that, that is missing if we, if we keep it at just that purely human level. And apparently the point that the Danites are missing is that what is the word of God directed them to do? It's not these things. And, and that I think begins to take us a little bit back to where our, our conversation of, on the one hand, you've got this, outward sort of piety, where the words that they're saying are sounding pretty good, even the actions that they're taking look pretty good. And maybe we can talk a little bit about the parallels here that we see in this and the account of the spies who enter into the promised land uh, back in the book of Numbers. But, but when you start to dig deeper than those outward appearances and just the sound of the words that are uttered, you start to see that 
there really isn't faith in the hearts of these Danites. Yeah, and I think that's the absolute point. That the Danites do take a lot of their language from the scriptures and, and the the scriptural stories that they would have been familiar with. They take a lot of their actions uh, from the scriptures and the way that the conquests have happened, specifically here with the the spies. And then we're going to find out here later um, an, another thing that they do in common. Um, with the previous conquest is that the Danites do decide to completely destroy and raise Laish before rebuilding it. So you kind of get that, that same connection back with like Jericho at the beginning of, of Joshua. But the problem here is that when, when the Israelites were, were conquering the land previously, they were doing these things at the direction of God. And in this particular story, the Danites are doing it at their own discretion to, uh, to kind of feed themselves and to do what they want. So they're not being just here. They're, they're trying to figure a way to justify what they already want to do. Right. They've And they have, as we, we mentioned earlier, they've cloaked it in the, the, maybe the sheep's clothing of divine intervention, right? They, they went to that Levite and got his blessing for what it was worth. We already looked at that, that that's really illegitimate, both on their part and his. So they've They've mm-hmm. acted as if they're approaching this from a divine perspective, but that's that's really missing here. And and I think I think we'll see that as we look at more similarities, maybe some differences too, between this account here and the account of those spies in the book of Numbers. But I think we're gonna pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. Gonna take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, August 10th, and we are studying Judges chapter 18, verses 1 through 31. We've got Pastor Matt Ulmer with us. He serves at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas. Pastor Ulmer, prior to the break, we were talking about these spies sent by the Danites to check out Laish. And there's, there's some similarities that we see when it comes to these spies and the spies that Joshua, sorry, Moses sent into the land. That was, that was Moses that sent. Joshua was one of those spies that went. We see some similarities between those accounts. And so again, on the surface, it looks very similar, but there's some pretty key differences. Take us into those. Yeah, I think the biggest key difference is one that we kind of alluded to in, in the case of Moses, the, the spies going into the land was done in faith of Yahweh and by his direction. In this case, the Danites are doing it on their own. Another difference that I think is really, really interesting is that when the spies 
Moses' spies went into the land of Canaan, uh, there were 12 of them, and 10 of them came back and reported that the the land had had good things in it, but that there was no way that they were going to be able to overpower the people. And in the case of Laish, the spies come back and say, oh, yeah, the land's great, and we can, we can take care of it. So you kind of have a, a little bit of a difference there in how the, the spies end up reporting the message. Right. And and yet, even in that difference, you see that that first difference come back, that sure, they give two different reports. The spies in Moses' day say, hey, we can't do this. And these guys say, well, sure, we can. But both of those are based upon that unfaithfulness to the Lord. And that unfaithfulness is definitely what's here at play with the tribe of Dan. So let's let's keep reading in yep. the narrative, because now these, these things are going to start to intersect even more. Micah and his Levite, the tribe of Dan, looking for their inheritance. We're picking up in verse 11 now in Judges 18. So 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, set out from Zorah and Eshtaol, and went up and encamped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. On this account, that place is called Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. And they passed on from there to the hill country of Ephraim, and came to the house of Micah. The five men who had gone to scout out the country of Laish said to their brothers, Do you know that in these houses there are an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now, con- now therefore consider what you will do. And they turned aside there and came to the house of the young Levite at the home of Micah and asked him about his welfare. Now the six hundred men of the Danites, armed with their weapons of war, stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone to scout out the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, while the priest stood by the entrance of the gate with the six hundred men armed with weapons of war. And when these went into Micah's house and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, What are you doing? And they said to him, Keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth, and come with us, and be to us a father and a priest. Is it better for you to be priest to the house of one man, or to be priest to a tribe and clan in Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. He took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. All right, we'll pause there. Pastor Ulmer, as we were reading, uh, that phrase that we used earlier came to mind, this idea of might makes right. And I think we saw that in the previous account where the spies are looking at Laish and they think, well, might makes right. We can do this, and so we will. They're, they're looking at it from a very broad perspective there. And now here they're on their way. We, we get the account of how they get there. And on the way, ah, look, here is the house of Micah. And it seems that this idea of might makes right comes back into their minds and they act accordingly. I absolutely. You, you can almost see this whole uh, episode play out. You, you have an army who is marching to this unsuspecting enemy and this army is going to take over the, the good land and the good city and they're going to plop themselves down. And what would be better than having a city well, to have riches and a a priestly presence and some household gods so that they can kind of wrap up the whole situation in one fatal swoop. And this is exactly what they do. The spies tell 
of their clansmen about the house and the the Levite and the the stuff in Micah's house and what do they do? They stop there. They kind of pillage the house. Initially, the Levite is kind of worried about what they are doing, uh, asking them what in the world they're doing, and they basically make him a, a proposition that he can't refuse, that instead of being Micah's priest, that he can do that job, but for their entire clan, and uh, he seems to be just pleased to do that for them. Uh, so in this situation, not only are they going to use their might to take over the house, but they're going to use their might to set up their own religious system also. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, when you, when you, as you're reading the, the account, it really seems that what is motivating them here is first and foremost greed. These, these five men say, hey, look, don't you know what's over there? And, and they point out the ephod, the household gods, the carved image, the metal image, which certainly all have religious connotation. But it really seems more than anything, they're thinking, ah, here are some great items of plunder for us. And then any religious connotation that is associated with them is just an added bonus. Yeah, and and inviting the Levite to become their own personal priest kind of gives them kind of a backwards justification to, to do it too. So not only is Micah probably not going to be able to put up a fight. They're going to be able to claim that they have God's blessing because, hey, look, we got a Levite now. Isn't this great? Mm. Well, it, it couldn't be further from the truth. And it, and it, it is, and, and that's a good point, because the this Levite has already given them his blessing. I mean, back in verse 6, yep. he, he told those initial spies to go in peace, that, that this is the Lord who's leading you and guiding you. Your journey is under his eye, so, so no worries. He's already giving them his blessing, and now when they come back, you know, I mean, you really start to get a picture of this Levite even fuller. I mean, we've, we've seen it already where he's willing to come and be Micah's personal priest for a sum of money. Now it seems he's just got a better job offer. And he is happy to take it. So, I mean, just just if we pause for just a moment here, Pastor Ulmer, and, and reflect on what we've read so far, because I think you, you use the word wild to describe this text so far. And and it really is, it's one of those texts where you, you are left scratching your head a bit and saying, I, I can't believe that's in the Bible, because it, it just is so, so far from what the Lord gives to his people in his word. We've got Micah the individual, who is a thief from his own mother. We've got a Levite, a member of the priestly clan in Israel, who has completely forgotten all of the instructions that were given to the Levites. And we've got an entire tribe who has decided to forsake what the Lord would give them in inheritance physically in the land, and the inheritance that he would really have them have in his word, in the the worship life, all of these things are just in complete chaos. The picture that this account is is painting for us is one of, of just utter moral, spiritual, religious, every kind of decay you can think of, that's the picture that's being painted, it seems. Yeah, and I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think what this what this story, especially up to now, has shown us is exactly what happens when humanity doesn't understand and take seriously the first commandment: "You shall have no other gods." Because when when that one key commandment 
goes away when you start putting your your fear, your love, your trust in other things. Eventually, you're going to even stop putting your fear, your love, and the trust in those people and those things. You're going to end up putting that fear, love, and trust in yourself. Mm. And when we allow ourselves to become our own idols, when we allow ourselves to become our own gods, then it's just a, a matter of what we can convince ourselves that we are able to do. So even more than understanding this story as a as a historical event that happened in Scripture, it's also a very uh, key case study into the absolute decay of kind of the, the human spirit when God and his commands do not kind of rest upon us. Mm. These accounts here at the end of the book of Judges really do put flesh and blood on that phrase that was used in the first part, where over and over again it says that the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and we talked about that phrase, and you've, you've tied it very well for us, to the matter of idolatry once again, that ultimately the evil that is done in the sight of the Lord is idolatry. But it's not like that everything else was great, that they were somehow worshiping idols, but then they were living great, upright, moral lives. This really, these accounts really do put some some flesh and blood on what that actually looked like. And when you see that picture, not just the black and white, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, but now the color, the color TV here that we're getting to see in full high definition, it's ugly. And, and I, it, it just invites us to to take very seriously, as you said, that first commandment. What does life look like when we forsake the one true God? It looks like this, and it's not pretty. It, it looks like this. And, and we should take yeah, that very seriously. The, Go ahead. Yeah, and I think that the most painful part about that, and the most difficult part for me, and, and maybe you as a preacher, is that understanding that idolatry is something that all of God's people have to contend with, and that if, if given up to my own devices, that not only can people do these kind of things, but I'm capable of doing it too. And that's kind of the uncomfortable confrontation of the law. Mm. Right, and, and, and we have to a, go a there. Nice color picture here. Yeah, no, and, and you're, I mean, you're exactly right, that we have to go there. We, we can't just sit back and, you know, 3,000 years later here think, oh, we would never do such things. No, we would. We would. That's we would. that's the sinful nature yeah. that dwells inside each one of us. And and although it may not take the exact same shape and form of going and conquering a particular city and setting up a carved image with an ephod and, and stealing things from our own parents, this idolatry that, that would dwell in each one of us that likes to come out, it it would do ugly stuff. And it doesn't it doesn't take much looking at the world around us and in my own life to see where yeah, idolatry ab- would lead. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I know that you probably do this when you when you teach the catechism to both young and old. It's understanding that if if we don't have the first commandment right, if we do not understand and see ourselves as God's people bought and won by the cost of Jesus's uh death, that all of the all of the negative aspects of the Ten Commandments that we learn about in the Catechism, those are going to apply for to us, um, all of them, one through ten. 
we we are capable of of doing those evils to ourselves, our families, our community members, our world. Mm. And and so we we should not skip over sections of scripture like this or wonder what they're doing in the Bible. They're there in the Bible to instruct us, to give us this yeah. color high definition picture of what it looks like when God is not reigning as our king, when we have forsaken his kingdom. This is what it looks like. And and we need to take a good look at this as a warning so that, that we would flee instead to our good and gracious King Jesus Christ. So let's let's keep reading, Pastor Ulmer. We're in verse 21 now. So again, where, where are we in the narrative? The people of, of Dan, the warriors are on their way to Laish to conquer it. They've gotten Micah's Levite and all of his religious paraphernalia, and they're on their way out. That's where we're picking up the text. So they turned and departed putting the little ones and the livestock and the goods in front of them. When they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What is the matter with you that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? How then do you ask me what is the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not let your voice be heard among us, lest angry fellows fall upon you, and you lose your life with the lives of your household. Then the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. There there again, Pastor Ulmer, might makes right. (laughs) I I think you have it right there in... The, the image that you use there, like big color, big screen, high definition picture right there. That's exactly what goes on right here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of amazing that Micah ends up coming back, sees that his home has been pillaged, that his illegitimate priest has been stolen, and he, he tries to to do what is just in his own eyes. And what did the Danites tell him? Well, your your idea of what's just is not our idea of what's just. We are stronger than you. You're going to let us do what we want, or we're going to kill you too. And this is exactly what you get. Right. I mean, Micah thinks he's got a pretty good deal going here with his priest and his his religious stuff, and the people of Dan have taken advantage of that. And that's essentially the answer they give him. You know, we're bigger than you. We could kill you. Go back home before you die. And it's, yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's a very yeah. ugly picture of the relationship of of people who should be brothers. These are these are fellow Israelites who are doing this to each other, and and who are taking advantage of each other, manipulating each other, making threats against each other. This is this is yeah. again, it's just ugly. Well, and it, and it stands. I mean, going back to the the idolatry uh, statement, it just stands to to assume that these people did not understand what it meant to be called one of God's children, because Mm -hmm. God was supposed to be the one whom they followed, and as his people, they weren't to kill, they they weren't to steal, they weren't to make false idols. And Micah gives himself into allowing uh, kind of a perversion of his faith, and what does he get in return? He gets it all taken away from him Mm -hmm. by even more wicked people. So there, there is no safety outside of God's uh, providence and strong arm, and and Micah uh, shows that very much here uh, when he confronts the Danites. Right. I mean, he's he's got really no legs to stand on. He tries, but he he doesn't, and and he's yeah. he's got everything now stripped away from him. And of course, we don't we don't find anything else out about Micah after this text, but you'd like to think 
that this would be a moment of repentance for Micah. I mean, thinking back to, say, Samson in, in Judges 16, when he hits rock bottom, you see him brought to repentance there when everything is taken away from him, even his eyes. You, you see that glimmer of repentance there before he dies. And, and you'd like to think that that's where Micah is left. Now, of course, we don't know, but that perhaps it's one of those moments for us when we read that in Scripture where there's not that outcome given to us, that it's an opportunity for us to reflect and think about those times when our idols have been knocked down and taken away from us, and and the suffering that that's caused us, have we been led to that repentance? Because that's where God ultimately wants to bring us when he does that. He does that alien work of, of destroying us with his law so that he would then raise us to life with his gospel. That, that would be my my hope and prayer for Micah in this situation, that it was a, a rock-bottom wake-up call moment, and that his only salvation was would be to return to the Lord his God. Hmm, right. So again, we don't find that out, but the account does then continue a little bit more with the people of Dan. We've got that one loose end. What's going to happen with Laish? So let's, let's see if we can just, as you and I were talking, Pastor Ulmer, this narrative, you really have to see the whole thing together. There are scenes that we've been looking at, but there it needs to be tied together. So you've got the people of Dan looking for their inheritance. They've come upon Micah and his Levite and all the household gods. They've gone their way. They found the place. They've stopped along the way to conquer that place, to get the riches and the plunder from their own people. Might makes right. They've sent Micah away. Now the only thing left is to go and conquer Laish. So let's see how the text concludes. This is now verse 27 of Judges 18. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priest who belonged to him, and they came to Laish, to a people quiet and unsuspecting and struck them with the edge of the sword, and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer, because it was far from Sidon, and they had no dealings with anyone. It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. Then they rebuilt the city and lived in it, and they named the city Dan, after the name of Dan their ancestor, who was born to Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves, and Jonathan the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he had made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. And that's the end of Judges 18. And, and again, there's no, there's no real happy ending here, Pastor Ulmer. It, it, the text concludes along that same awful, idolatrous trajectory that it's been on the whole time. Take us into, first take us into the actual conquering of the city of Laish. Yeah, I think when when we were talking earlier, I think one of the most fascinating parts about this text, which is ultimately about the the Danites conquering of Laish and making it their home, that the the most unimportant part of this entire text is actually the conquest itself. They come up with a plan, they execute the plan, and in just a couple of statements, it seems to be that they are able to carry out their plans without any hitches, right? They they go up to the city, they find the people at peace and secure, they attack them, they win, they burn to the ground, they rebuild, and there's the, the conquering narrative, right? So there's so little there that it almost seems to be not even close to the most important part of the text, and to me that's really, really interesting. Hmm. So, I mean, what, you know, here comes this conquering of Laish, 
And on the one hand, I think it's very it's very similar to what we were talking about earlier with the matter of the spies. On the one hand, things look very similar in terms of the way that they conquer this town. They they do what God had said to do. They they devoted everything to destruction, and yet they've not been following the word of the Lord. And so it would seem that this event is cast in a negative light through this text. Yeah, and I, I think that ends up being the most significant, most important, and most interesting part of this text, because they they do not do what God wants them to do, and what do they kind of reap from that? And the answer is that the people of Dan, from that point forward, um, commit themselves to being a people who are completely kind of indoctrinated in idolatry. Um, they they set up Micah's idol um, in the northern territory, and they make that place their, their place of worship. So from the moment that the Danites, quote-unquote, received their inheritance, their illegitimate inheritance, that inheritance they, they bought from this, uh, they won for themselves, they 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 completely stray from from God's path uh, completely. And as you said, this leads them to no place good to, to the point that the people of Dan become kind of so idolatrous and so consumed with doing themselves, doing things their own way, that they are uh, the tribe that's left out of the, of the people of God in Revelation 7. Mm-hmm. The, the Danites are become known as this this idolatrous clan and um in in the list of the 144,000 where's Dan they're they're, they're not listed the Danites get apparently what they want which is uh a place away from the the god who had won them by defeating Pharaoh and ultimately the god who would send his son Jesus to to die and raise him from the dead for their salvation the the other the other verse that comes to mind when you picture the tribe of Dan as a whole here is from Genesis chapter forty nine before Jacob dies he blesses yeah. his twelve sons yeah. and in, in Genesis forty nine verse seventeen Jacob has said says this prophetically about his his son Dan and the whole tribe he says Dan shall be a serpent in the way a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward and and Jacob's Words of prophecy prove themselves true here in the book of Judges. A, a very, a very ugly end here. Now, again, I mean, the, the tribe of Dan as a, as a people does continue on historically, of course. And and as you you pointed out, this trajectory that they've got for themselves here includes idolatry. Well, I mean, oh, just talk about how bad it is, real quick. It's it's including some of the very descendants of Moses. So, I mean, look how look how yeah. far. The people of Israel have fallen. That Moses, the greatest prophet in Israel until Jesus, the very, very pro- the very descendants of Moses are a part of this idolatry. It lasts until the yeah. day of the captivity of the land, which I, I think, and, and you you can disagree with me if you want on this, Pastor Elmer. But from what I've read, this matter of captivity of the land is probably not talking about the Assyrian conquest after the divided kingdom, but rather the captivity of the Ark of the Covenant that happens in the book of of First Samuel. There's a, a psalm that refers to that time as a captivity, which would match up with with the matter of this was true as long as the house of God was at Shiloh, and of course that was put it that the house of God moved from Shiloh 
to Jerusalem under King David. And and I think all of that does propel this text forward. And you just kind of have to be looking at this text and you're like, boy, this is bad. Can't wait till David shows up. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think that's ultimately where this text is pointing is to to David, who does restore the land. He he restores the people under one banner, under the banner of God. David being the king who is after the very heart of God, mm. and ultimately pointing to the one who 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 makes for himself a people Israel, the the true Israel, Jesus Christ, the one who who died and was raised, that all people might be the people of God. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And that and that's where we, we need to end this text, uh, Pastor Ulmer. So there's there's about two and a half minutes here on the morning. As as you reflect on Judges eighteen as a whole and this time of the, the book of Judges, sum things up for us and, and use it to point us toward our Savior Jesus. Yeah, for for this text, which is a very, very strange text, I would just recommend all the the readers of this text and the listeners of this program to remember who we are as as fallen creatures when when we do follow our own passions in our in our own ways when we when we walk away from the path of the Lord our God, that we end up finding ourselves in very, very scary territory. But also uh, with that understood, we are constantly reminded that even though we don't have much good in ourselves and even though we can't fight for ourselves, we do have a God who fights for us, who who does uh, restore order in his servant David, who ultimately does uh, produce Jesus, the one who fights for us and the one who calls us together and, and makes us one people. Mm. Pastor Matt Ulmer is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Bishop, Texas, helping us this morning with Judges chapter 18, verses 1 through 31. Pastor Ulmer, thanks for being our guest today. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. The idolatry that was rampant during the time of the Judges has not been eradicated. It is the idolatry that you and I would fall into in our sinful nature. We dare not look at them with some sort of arrogance, but rather see in this text a warning, a warning against idolatry that would cause us to repent of the idolatry into which we fall and look instead to our true deliverer, our true high priest, Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you and for me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Tim of the Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithfield, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.